to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello and welcome. My name is Amanda Grego, and I'm the pharmacy manager of Supply Chain and 340B at the University of Virginia Medical Center, and I will be your host today for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. With me today are Seth Hartman, the Executive Director of Pharmacy Informatics at University of Chicago, and Ryan Hannon, the Pharmacy Manager for River Corridor of Southeast Minnesota at Mayo Clinic Health System. Thanks for joining us today, Seth and Ryan. Let's start talking about today's topic, Translating Data into Action, Part 2, the second of a two-part podcast series. Many frontline employees see operational metrics as an oversimplification of their work. What metrics and strategies have you used to achieve buy-in from employees and drive workflow improvement? So when designing metrics that are going to be used for uh, frontline employees, especially when they relate to performance, it's important to get buy-in for uh, what these metrics represent and uh, what factors contribute to the performance of the employees. So for example, uh, one metric that's been successful was uh, looking at dispense preparation percentage. And so dispense preparation is a function in some electronic health records where orders can be uh, scanned and then the products that are used to compound that order uh, are scanned against the label to make sure that the right products are used during compounding. And so some of the factors that can contribute to Uh, difficulty in reaching a high percentage of dispense preparation are when a medication bill doesn't have the barcodes entered correctly. And so it can be helpful to get buy-in in that situation by um, using the issues that uh, frontline staff may bring forward to improve medication build and therefore uh, take that feedback to improve the metric. And they can see that the uh, percentage of compliance improves as the uh, med build is enhanced. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Ryan. I think a, a big part of this is, you know, tying the the end goals of the business and, and the operations down to smaller and smaller objectives, but then breaking those down into things that our staff care about and metrics that matter to them, and, and helping them, you know, relate the duties that they're doing to the overall success of patient care and and kind of building that bridge we we build a, a little bit of the the buy-in that you're speaking to in terms of how people can then take that measurement not feel like we're measuring um you know minute tasks of theirs and trying to really like usher them forward throughout the day but then to take it to heart to say like these things that I'm doing have an overall impact on the patient outcomes here. And the better we are as a team at performing these, the better we are going to be at achieving the goals uh, that we have set forth for our patients and improving patient lives and and, uh, healthiness. Thank you. Those are some great points. And I think that flows really well into our next question. When developing a dashboard that will be used to understand performance, how do you decide what measures or metrics to include? Outside of performance metrics, what additional information should be included in a report to ensure end users can understand or interpret the dashboard? Thanks so much for that question, Amanda. You know, I think we want to throw 
every piece of data we have into a dashboard, right? Especially, you know, coming from pharmacy informatics, I get super excited about all the data I have. And I want to just take all of that and say like, hey, everybody look at all these cool metrics. But it's it's really important to make sure that we understand the audience and we understand who's going to receive it, who's going to use it, how are they going to use it, how is it going to be perceived, and how will it motivate, and and use those different factors to help us determine selectively what data to present, which data are relevant to what. So grouping your data by type or by workflow or by staff member or consumer, right? So thinking about how do we parse this down making sure that you have tool tips or reference points within the data. So, you know, pop-ups that kind of give descriptors or giving a little bit of the, um, you know, your Y-axis and X-axis, making sure those are labeled if you're going to present the data in that way, or if it's a single metric, what was the time frame of the metric and making sure that those are related there. And then overall, the naming and grouping of the dashboard and perhaps multiple dashboards that you would have within uh, an organization, making sure that folks can navigate to those easily, finding the right data via naming or synonyms or um, uh, you know hashtagging or, or whatever the tool may be, um, allowing folks to be able to find the report they're looking for or the dashboard they're looking for and tying it all together. I think those are some excellent points, Seth. Uh, the only thing that I would add in are the idea of having cover sheets or fact sheets to uh, explain data definitions and also uh, show how the report could be used, maybe some common use cases for uh, the information that's there. And then with those cover or fact sheets, uh, making sure that um, we use the process of iterative design to uh, show how the data has been updated or uh, what might be changed whenever a dashboard is refreshed. That way, all of the users can stay familiar, even if there are changes to how data is presented. Absolutely, Ryan. And, and you just made me think of, too, like the orientation to data and dashboards is so important and taking it to your team huddles or your team meetings or, or whatever you may have. And, and those fact sheets are so important and having a point to go back to for the staff to reference, okay, what was this and how do I use this and how do I make sense of the data that's presented here? All great points. Agreed. I think those are great points for making something that can be confusing to end users, really simple and things that we need to think about. So let's move on to the next question. The most significant benefits of clinical interventions are improved patient outcomes. However, sometimes a positive outcome is the mitigation of an issue or an event that happens after a hospitalization. How do you quantify the absence of an event or an outcome? Thanks, Amanda. I think this is a really good question and something that a lot of people are challenged to overcome. And the uh, way that I found to be fairly successful is just working with teams to bring forward near misses. It's difficult uh, in operations to capture things that never happened, but that doesn't mean that those who are working within those systems are uh, unaware of the various opportunities for improvement. So using an incident reporting system to capture what may have been a bad situation can sometimes trend data to find opportunities and to do that trend that trending, it's important to use as many discrete data types as possible so that uh, we can uh, find where the opportunities are versus uh, free text can sometimes be difficult to capture that information. So um, staff can usually buy into capturing those near misses when 
uh, we tie that back to finding opportunities for improvement in their workflow or mitigating things that may be uh, difficult or frustrating to complete. So that capturing um, does require some closing the loop in order to find where that opportunity lies. Great, great example, Ryan. Um, I think I think another example that we can sort of reflect on this and one that I find myself chasing my tail on sometimes is the program with meds to beds and reducing readmission risk. Inherent to the program of meds to beds is a targeting of services to patients who have complex medication therapies at discharge that we want to make sure understand those therapies, have prescriptions on hand when they go home, and are successful at reducing that readmission risk and being able to be healthy outside of the hospital. And because the program itself you know, unless you have a global program and you try to do meds beds for every single patient you have, which some organizations do and others don't, um, if you don't, you're, you're relying on clinicians or other experts to help you target patients that would be benefited by the program. So inherently, oftentimes you're targeting the patients that already have a higher risk of readmission. So it becomes really complex in terms of looking at some of these mitigation strategies because those patients end up being in a higher risk category. So maybe the overall reduction in readmission rate is occurring, but the readmission rate of your meds to beds population is still greater than the readmission rate of the other population of the hospital for which you're not selecting for that intervention. And so what we've done to approach this problem is a couple of different things. One, you, you could do pre-post studies, right? So you can say, before we targeted this patient group for meds to beds, what was our readmission rate? What was it after we targeted that patient group? And that's one way to go about it. We use a, a tool with our case miss index that we call CMI bucketing. And so we just create some small ranges within the CMI, a few points here or there within our standard ranges. And it allows us to group patients by the case mix index, which is a rating of how challenging maybe their, their visit or stay was or how complex their medical situation is. And then we can look at that also by the count of prescriptions. And when we break it down by the CMI buckets and count of prescriptions, we do see a reduction in the readmission rates for meds to beds. But it, again, you have to take in a larger sum of data because now we're slicing our count of patients down pretty far. So you have to look back further. So you have to get a little creative when you're looking at some of these interventions that improve outcomes, but are sort of, you know, avoidance type safety measures, they, they do get tricky. Um, I, I recommend reaching out to colleagues if you get stuck on one of these. A lot of us have had experience with one or the other. So if you, you know, post a message on ASHB's um, leadership boards or, you know, reach out to others on your SAGs or committees, you know, there, there's probably someone who's dealt with this who has a creative idea of how to measure that negative space for that improvement. So I think that's an excellent point. And that reminded me uh, one other point that I wanted to raise, and that's that for a lot of these opportunities that are uh, either near misses or focused on outcomes, one thing that often gets overlooked is the amount of time it can take to develop those trends. So it's easy to get discouraged if we don't see trends in data right away. But sometimes when we're capturing things that either don't happen very often or are um, maybe a little less obvious, we need to monitor them longer in order to see that come out. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Patience is a virtue here, especially when we're talking about risks avoided, because measuring those is hard in the first place. And oftentimes, 
your impact is only on a few patients. And so you need to have a lot of data to be able to really quantify that. The, the other strategy I've, I've seen used here is there are some published literature on the costs of an event happening, some sort of like, you know, there, there's a general cost to a readmission. Um, there's probably figures out there for general costs to other events happening. And then if you can look at triggers of those events or the relative reduction in those over time, you know, you can start to quantify for, um, you know, like a return on investment for different types of tools. But again, those are those are a little bit more challenging to do than direct ROIs or, or some of the other things that we measure. Thank you for those great points. I think it, it can be so hard to quantify the benefit of our intervention. So I think these are great ideas that you guys have presented. So moving on, one risk of implementing metrics is the incentive to game the system in order to improve perceived quality or efficiency of work. How do you prevent this and monitor for accuracy and validity in the data being looked at? So gaming the system is something that is always an inherent risk of monitoring uh, quality or efficiency of work, especially when it's tied to uh, things that happen every day or are more transactional in nature. But there are easy ways to overcome this as well. So the first one is just being aware of the risk points in the system and uh, being aware that there is potential for data to not be 100% representative of what's happening. However, staff also can be included to help those designing metrics to understand where there could be flaws or where there are opportunities to either generate workarounds or make performance look like it may be higher than it actually is. And then when those are identified, you can either find ways in designing the metric to monitor for that, that inaccurate data, such as comparing people to their peers or um, looking at shift comparisons for some transactional metrics. Otherwise, a direct observation is pretty much the gold standard in finding out what's going on day-to-day -day in a qualitative sense. So if data, for example, is showing that it takes 10 minutes to compound something and direct observation says that the average is closer to 15 or 20, it becomes more obvious that there could be something um, inherently flawed in how the performance data is being collected. And then discrete da data elements can also be used to do a cross check. So looking at the time it takes to perform more iterative steps versus uh, looking at a process as a whole. I really appreciate your input there. And I, I think this challenge exists not only at an individual level, but even at a health system level. Um, I'm gonna date myself a little bit here, but during meaningful use phase one implementation several years ago, there was a tendency for health systems to to game those reports. And I think the classic example from this is the allergy review. So the requirement was that allergies need to be reviewed at every visit by a provider of record on that patient, whether it was inpatient or outpatient, every single visit needed to have that done. And so the reportable for that was often a single click on a button that said Mark has reviewed, irrespective of which EHR or clinical system you used. 
And so all of the incentive was put on getting that button clicked rather than a meaningful review of the patient's allergies and the tools and with which we need to do that. And so as health systems, we moved that metric forward very quickly. We had great outputs on clicking that button and we chased providers down and made sure everybody knew how to click that button and get that clicked appropriately. But I don't think we made an actual change to the reduction in allergy risks to patients or an increase in at least in, in communicating and understanding newfound allergies of patients. The strategy for all of these metrics was then in phase two and phase three of meaningful use to continue to iterate on those metrics and try to grab more meaningful data that actually was representative of the outcome of the action rather than the action itself. And so I think in this case, you know, I don't know that we've actually solved the allergy button click, but I think a good tool to look at would be repeat anaphylactic episodes or repeat allergic episodes to the same medication on the same patient, even if it's outside of one health system to another. Now, that doesn't mean a patient is necessarily a good historian, but if we're doing our due diligence, I think we could come up with or find between communications of our health system partners or communication with other providers and understanding these new allergies that patients have developed, they're probably documented somewhere. And if we can reconcile that, we can prevent that outcome from happening, which I think would be a lot better metric. And so I guess what I'm sort of giving this long story about those, continuing to iterate on the metrics you're measuring to make sure that you can't game the system to get around them. Or if you are, quote, gaming the system, you're actually improving your work to meet the metric. So it's, there's kind of a, a constant retailoring of these metrics we need to do over time as folks get used to them, as they find ways to hit the metric maybe um, without uh, matching our guidance. And we learned a lot of that, as you pointed out very astutely, Ryan, through direct observation of workflow and how these things are actually happening. I agree with you, Seth, and I think there are two things that you mentioned uh, that I want to call out. And the first is that uh, it takes multiple people to design a metric. So having not only the data team and the operations team look at it, but maybe those who could be less connected with the system in order to identify those opportunities for uh, gaming it. And then the other one is that uh, it's important to monitor numerous points within a process. So you mentioned some things that are more frontline transactional things to look at, like those initiation steps, but then also more complex things down the line, like how something might affect an outcome. Completely agree. Thank you for that. I think you guys both touched on how important discrete data is to collecting data for metrics. So that moves us right along to our next question. So capturing this discrete information from clinical data can be inherently difficult given its subjective nature. What methods for capturing the value of clinical interventions have you found to be successful? Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, there's quite a lot of challenge, honestly, in trying to get discrete information, especially out of things like notes or pharmacist interventions or things like that. You know, we we have tools that we can deploy to count these um, in some sort of numerative fashion, but I think there's a, a few quick strategies to working on this. So one of them is, is if you have an understanding and somewhat standards of time that certain events require. So if you know that an IV to PO conversion on average takes 10 minutes, you can, you can sort of normalize your data by just counting the number of times you do an IV to PO. And you can look at those conversions that were managed by a pharmacist by getting into your data and see who like the acting user was or, or where those notes live. Other activities that pharmacists may do in terms of weighing in on 
the clinical benefit of one drug versus another during rounds and things like that. We really need to get those documented into notes. And there's, there's a few different ways to do that. So some health systems have adopted some of these sort of speech to text tools that are available out there. There's a handful of them that join with multiple other EHRs. They simplify the process of getting text and sort of that contextual information from someone's mind and mouth into the chart so that we have that sort of non-discrete data that lives there. And then you can use tools like natural language processing or others to sort of harvest those. Not everyone has access to like NLP and some of these other algorithms to create discrete codified data from these sort of like text blobs that come out in terms of notes. Uh, another strategy I've seen is keyword searching. So you can you know, take a, a snapshot of pharmacist notes and you can go through those notes and you can do perform keyword searches on that field. And you can highlight the cells that have specific keywords. And then you can go back through and read those notes and identify what those clinical interventions were. It's, it's a little bit more challenging to go through that. I'm not going to lie that it is time consuming, but you can start to create some discrete data by categorizing those types of notes. And especially if you have a routine for doing this, you know, every week to two weeks, you go back there and do that to the notes. You can build a repository of uh, reports and notes and things like that that are really useful to use then in your reporting tools rather than just having to pull these sort of very discrete data points for the type of note or things like that. So you can really get into the clinical content and understand a little bit more about it. I would recommend leaning into some of these newer technologies when you have that capability. They certainly make capturing the notes more um, available. And then if you can work with some of the NLP or other technologies, you can certainly uh, make these inferences into those note data a lot more simply, but it's challenging all around. Thanks, Seth. Those are some excellent points. And uh, the one thing I do want to expand on a little bit is the balance between the labor intensiveness for maybe an informatics or a reporting team or the frontline staff. And so looking at some of those newer, higher level tools like AI or predictive modeling, there can be some pretty intensive time and design for the reporting team uh, that may be a little more behind the scenes than some of the more rudimentary options like having discrete fields built into the electronic medical record with either dropdowns or other ways to capture kind of obviously discrete information that might be more intensive for the staff. So if an organization is looking to implement this and maybe doesn't have the resources to jump into natural language processing right away, they can use some of those discrete and more obvious options. However, there might be more time intensive uh, collection for the staff than there is for a reporting team that might need to invest a lot of time and resource into designing algorithms to do more of the work behind the scenes. Thank you for all of the good points that you guys have been making through all of our questions. I think we're going to end on a short yet loaded question just to wrap everything up. So what metrics have proven most valuable to your organization, whether it's quality, safety, efficiency, or any other metrics that you've developed? Yeah, loaded is right. That's a tough question to answer. But as I, as I think about the last year, I mean, it, it's pretty easy to say that our, our daily reporting around our uh, COVID infection rates and our room occupancy and our ED visits, uh, th those were really central to our operations. We were having to do quite a bit of flexing of staff, of uh, handling of medications, of learning ways in which we needed to expand our operations. So those, those are very central to us. 
thinking of maybe some some more non-direct COVID times, you know, we we do things like counting of these different types of pharmacist interventions. And so, you know, we we look at as we have really tried to push our meds to beds program, you know, we've taken a look at our discharge medication education. Uh, but on the outpatient side, we look at like our direct and indirect remuneration fees and what are our rates on those and how can we you know, model our business to get around those. And we look at our script volumes and we look at our total inpatient compounding. Like there's there's a whole host of operational and clinical metrics that we're using to try to drive the business. And I would say the ones that universally are the most useful and the ones that have the greatest impact are the ones that relate most directly to our priorities at that point in time. So if they relate to our annual operation plan, they are going to get looked at daily, weekly, monthly, and they're going to drive the work that we do and the decisions we make to be able to capitalize on that. I would echo that, Seth. Tying the metrics being looked at to an organization's operational or strategic plan is critical. And in my experience, the metrics that prove to be most valuable are, uh, for operations at least, the ones that compare a volume of work to the resources available. So not necessarily um, orders verified, but potentially the mix of patients and their acuity or um, the infusion chairs that an organization may have to the staffing mix. So taking into account uh, what types of work are being done by a pharmacist and a technician and how that plays into the patient population that's present and what their needs would be. I, I couldn't agree more, Ryan. Absolutely astute. And we we have to take in all those considerations. And again, as we talked about at the very beginning of this chat, like make sure that the amount of data and the things that we're showing to people are meaningful, they relate, and that we're reflecting and managing outputs and expectations related to the data that exist. Well, thank you for your thoughts. These are all great things that I'm going to take back and, and look at with my team regarding data and how we're incorporating metrics for our teams. So that's all the time that we have today. Again, I want to thank Seth and Ryan for joining us today to discuss translating data into action. Join us here on Tuesdays where we will be talking with ASHP members about leadership topics within pharmacy practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.